Welcome to the Arrow Buddhist Tradition podcast series. The following podcast is an interview with Nakchon Rinpoche and Troma Rigsal in Alameda, California in March 2010. Interview questions cover various topics from the book Rays of the Sun. For more information about the Arrow Buddhist Tradition, please go to the website at arrowbuddhism.org. Your generous donations make these podcasts possible. If you wish to make a donation, please go to the section of the website labeled How to Help and select Make a Donation. In Rays of the Sun, you talk about using, not using the term ego and, and why you don't use that word. And I'm wondering if you could explain that for us. And I know that a lot of people seem to hear Buddhist teachings in terms of the word ego and getting rid of ego or even just any kind of Eastern spirituality, but there's some kind of pervasive idea that people have about destroying their ego and wanting to get rid of their ego. And I was really inspired by your description in Rays of the Sun of, of why it's important not to use that term. So could you explain that? Well, it's Freud's term. And it's not a translation of any Tibetan or Sanskrit word. Mm, okay. Um, you see, the thing is that, I mean, ego is just a sound. It's letters, but basically, um, it, it's not a noun, it's a verb. That's the big problem. If you had an ego, you couldn't get rid of it. And if you got rid of it, where would you put it? Where would you throw it? <laughs> Ego's a verb. Okay. So uh, one is egoing. And you can, you can get rid of that verb, you know, if you cease egoing, and then that ego doesn't have to be put anywhere. Like, you know, um, when I stop picking my nose, <laughs> my nose picking habit doesn't have to reside anywhere. Right? Where is my nose picking when I'm not nose picking? <laughs> it's there as a potential, you know? I think I wonder if there's some really good crusty bit up there. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, there's a crusty bit. I'll go after that, you know, and fine, and it comes back again. So ego is a kind of mode of being. It's just something we stop. And when it's stopped, it's gone. It's gone. It, it's, it's not anywhere. So the problem is making a noun out of it. It's not a noun, it's a verb. So it's not there when you're not doing it. When you're not doing it, it's entirely absent. So what is that making a noun? Is that from just that preoccupation of trying to define me and then ego? Is this another way we do that? Or you could say ego, if it is a noun, it's, yeah. it's um, the definition currently in use. Mm. That's it. But then that changes, then there's another definition that's currently in use for what I am. Uh, but what's more important than getting rid of the definition currently in use is the need to have a definition currently in use. 
that's what you need to get rid of, that's what needs to evaporate, having that need to define, rather than allowing oneself to be continuously redefined by whatever reality happens to be. And that happens anyway. So one accepts that situation. In uh, Rays of the Sun, you talk about having the kind of a, a base of accepting oneself and one's own condition as a good basis for practice. Well, it, it, it's or actually the only basis. Yeah. There is no other basis. And it seems like people often don't do that when they come to Buddhism, that they, that they're, or really any kind of spiritual schools probably, there seems to be a pervasive sense of wanting to get away from what they are. Would you talk about that? This, like the idea of wanting to not be how we are, but wanting to be something different, better or more esoteric or whatever, spectacular seems like the notion of ego is part of that. It, it puts what we are in terms that we can disassociate from it mm -hmm. in some way. I think that the problem there is not really how one comes to Buddhism. Uh, it's there with everything. Mm. Uh, we always want to be different from how we are. We always have some idealized version uh, I don't think it's a, you see, it's not a spiritual impulse. Mm. And that's the problem because uh, you'd, one would be better off um, taking up war between the states reenactment and saying, what I really am is a Confederate soldier. And people speak about, uh, the big high there being period rush. You know what period rush is? I have some idea. <laughs> period rush is when you lose the 21st century yeah. and wham, it's 1863. Mm. Uh, so this is what I'd rather be. I'd rather be in 1863. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, you know. I mean, it's far better to do that than approach Buddhism from that point of view. At least you have to work hard at it. Those people really work hard at being reenactors, you know. Wow. They they starve themselves, you know. Mm. In order to you know to get thin, they wear louse ridden clothing. <laughs> you know, they suffer, those guys, you know. I, I read about I was seriously impressed. I thought, if there were some practitioners who'd go this far, whoa, they, they <laughs> I mean, fantastic. You know, that amount of, you know, discipline and, you know, devotion to what they were doing, getting all the right clothes exactly and getting it manky and soiled and threadbare and, you know, just, you know, getting back to Gettysburg, you know, and yeah. just, that's, I mean, any practitioner who, who approached it with that degree of devotion would go far. 
But unfortunately, they're all out there reenacting rather than coming to Buddhist teachings. <laughs> but, you know, so, you know, when you approach Buddhist teaching, you really have to approach it in a different way. Um, which doesn't mean you can't also be a reenactor, I should say. I've got nothing against reenactment. But if you, uh, you know, if you approach Buddhism because you want to be different and your idea of different is some idealized version of yourself rather than what you actually are, then that's an obstacle you'll never get over until you get over it. But you can't actually move forward with that idea because you have to work with how you are as the basis. Well, thank you for that explanation. I saw some Lincoln reenactors. <laughs> that was very fascinating. It seems so disciplined. But uh, enacting the enacting being a Buddhist or enacting being enlightened or enacting being wise, I think I've heard of you talk about that phenomenon of as putting on a Buddhist face or something like that. Oh, the artificial Buddhist yes, personality, yes, yes. Yeah. So could mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that? As you know, why one question that I heard recently, which I'd love to hear your answer to, is you know, when when someone is a beginner in the path and they are just figuring out what it means to practice and they see the Lama as a kind of just symbol of what practice means, how difficult it is to not want to imitate that or emulate that and that, that it comes from this desire to be more like what they're experiencing the Lama is. So how, how would we work with that tendency as practitioners to, of not wanting to pretend to, to be spiritual or be wise or compassionate? It seems like there's a lot of mimicking out there and reenactment of Buddhism. I don't think it's the mimicking that's the problem as such. Um, it's what you want the result of the mimicking to be that's the problem, um, which is usually concerned with status. Oh, that's so interesting. If you just copied the teacher's characteristics uh, without any thought of how that would look to others, it wouldn't particularly be a problem. The problem is that I'm mimicking this so others will think I'm special. That's the problem. Um, and a lot of the problem is wanting to be special, wanting status. And the artificial Buddhist personality is really based on that, that, that if I put this out, as what I really am, people will think I'm special. So Rinpoche, in Rays of the Sun, there's a section where you talk about not needing to be devious or deceitful when we relate to the reality of what we are, rather mm -hmm. than trying to uphold our self-image. And this is, it just, this passage is so inspirational and liberating, the notion of not needing to be devious or deceitful anymore. 
can you talk about what is that, how would we come to that place of not trying to uphold our self-image or, or, or really this idea of relating to what we are, what is that? How, how would you describe the way that a practitioner could come to know that? Um, I think you, I can you know, describe it best in, in terms of obesity. Mm -hmm. uh, people who get fat, and I don't particularly see any problem in the shape of being fat. I, I know there are health issues concerned, but I think it's important to acknowledge how we are. Now, in terms of being deceitful, um, some people start uh, dressing in tents huge flowing clothing which, and they're trying to tell the world I'm not fat really I've just got this large dress on or if you're a man you have your shirt hanging out you know as a way of trying to disguise what you are if you don't want to be fat exercise and eat less if you don't want to exercise and eat less accept the fact that you're fat do one thing or another, but you know, um, it, it's a question of being honest and accepting what is. And so, you know, it's the same with Dharma. One has to accept how one is and work with that. And if you don't accept how you are, then you can't work with that. And I think a lot of problems arise. Uh, when people hide their neuroses or even give their neuroses spiritual validity. So, you know, there are good excuses for being angry. I am angry because you have not acted appropriately in the presence of the Lama or, or you've done this or you've done that or you've done the other and there's an excuse for anger. And I think there had many excuses for negative emotions, for neuroses, mm -hmm. in terms of dharma. You know, if you want to express your uh, negative feelings, then there's always room for it. And you can pretend you're being spiritual at the same time. That, that really is a big problem. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear you say that, and that was one of my questions for you today. I was so happy when I read the passage in Rays of the Sun where you come out and say it's never helpful to tell other Dharma practitioners that they're doing it wrong or that they shouldn't they should do another practice first or mm. I've heard that kind of talk between Dharma practitioners so much over the years, but I've never heard a Lama explicitly say, Don't do that, it's not helpful. Could you talk about why that's not helpful for us as Dharma practitioners to talk like this with one another and also where that comes from and what's some other way to address the impulse that that, that, that arises from? Uh, Self-importance. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, um, your qualities as a practitioner or lack of them is really only material between you and your teacher. It's, it's, it's not for anyone else. It's not helpful because really you need to get feedback 
from someone you respect. And there's no purpose in uh, students giving each other feedback. You know, uh, the person I need to be critical of most is me. Mm. How anyone else is living is, is their concern, you know, unless they're spraying graffiti on my car, and then I have some right to say, hey, get out of it, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, someone else's life is none of my concern in, in terms of their being a practitioner. It's between them and their teacher. Mm. And uh, all this advice that's offered or critical feedback is, is, is just self-importance. And that's really unhelpful, you know, to both the person who's hearing it and the person who's giving it. Mm. And it creates a bad atmosphere within a Sangha. Mm. Because it's, it's, it's always um, status adjustment and one-upmanship that's going on. Like, you know, who can be the most perfect practitioner? As far as I'm concerned, the most perfect practitioner is, is, the, is the kindest person in the Sangha, mm. the person who's most amenable the person who will compromise on things, the person who is looking out for other people in order to help them, you know, not the person who's most spiritually correct. That's horrible. Is that intention to help other people be spiritually correct, and you're talking about it in terms of self-importance, I think is what you said, and is there, what should someone do with that? It seems like they, should they repress it? I've heard you say there's times it's just better to repress it, but they, I know that I've met uh, people who say they burn with this, you know, frustration about how someone else is doing the practice wrong, or what do they do with those experiences? What's your advice? Hopefully, everyone will see this video and s then no longer someone perform this behavior. Somehow. Really what do they do? What does it? someone do who has a burning desire to give others negative feedback? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> well, they need to arrange for someone to tie them to a stump and <laughs> whip them, you know? <laughs> Anything, you know? Anything is better than that. <laughs> I guess they need to realize that, that it's a perversion. Yeah. You know, it's just a sickness. Mm. There's no value in it at all. <laughs> it is wholly and utterly disgusting. Yeah. That's, that's about all I can say. You know, that, uh, you, know, it's, you know, it's not even that, you know, you know, you know uh, as long as you're dealing with... Uh, you know, how do I deal with not reacting to this holy and noble emotion? You know, it's just a disgusting, depraved emotion. And you have to recognize that before it'll go away. You have to see how disgusting it is. Until you see it as disgusting, <laughs> you won't do anything about yeah. it, you know? Yeah. I mean, really seriously, you should say this ranks along with pedophilia as being one of the things <laughs> that you want to just <laughs> cut out of existence <laughs> completely. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 
the, the desire to give other people negative feedback is really problematic. Mm. And that uh, you can't even regard yourself as a spiritual practitioner if you want to do that. Mm. You, know. Mm. you know, it's better and more honest to get yourself a job as a, as a hitman. Mm. You know. Mercenary, you know. Um, It's really gratifying to hear you describe it as a perversion. Yeah, oh, ab absolutely. It, it is completely like perverted. Yeah. When you talk about the terms kindness versus compassion, it seems like the word kindness, in this case, one wouldn't give negative critical feedback to someone because it's unkind. And, but yet that's often described as compassionate behavior by the people who do mm. that. So, could you talk about what is this? The wha what about compassion and what it means, and the use of the term kindness, and why that's an important focus um, for us? In terms of giving negative f feedback, um, it's not really just that it's unkind; it is impractical. It, it doesn't actually achieve what you'd wish to set out to achieve, even if you had good intentions, because it's not easy to hear negative feedback. Um, now, if negative feedback is offered, and it's accurate, it still has to be heard. If it can't be heard, then the result is usually that the person being criticized um, feels justified in their behavior. And therefore, the negative feedback entrenches them further in that behavior than they were before they were criticized. So it is both unkind and impractical in order to hear negative feedback, you've got to be open to hearing it. And so how do you assess whether someone's open to hearing it unless they ask you for it? And then even if they ask you for it, you know, how honest are they in asking for this negative feedback? Right, give me the worst. Now, uh, tell me the worst thing about myself. Right. You know. <laughs> you know how much do you want me to say, you know? Where's, where's this going to go? Because, uh, you know, there aren't many people who would honestly ask for, you know, the heaviest hand you could deal. That would take a special kind of person. In fact, it would take the kind of person for whom you couldn't really offer much negative feedback anyway. Because to be completely open to hearing it would, m would mean you were uh, not that guilty of it to start with. Mm. So uh, those who are, are culpable are going to be the last people to want to hear it. So offering it is impractical. The only person who can offer it is going to be the teacher. And then even so, I mean, as a teacher, I don't give people 
complete negative feedback. I only give them what I feel they're capable of hearing. So I'm not honest with people. If I was actually honest, it would be terrible. You know, tell me what you really think of me. Are you sure? <laughs> I mean, what am I going to say? I can't help it about the shape I'm in. I ain't pretty and my legs are thin. But don't ask me what I think of you. I might not give you all the answers that you want me to. The old song. Yeah. Um, no, I can't sing. I ain't pretty and my legs are thin. Yeah. Uh, so it's you know, negative feedback has to be heard. It's got to be useful. The person has got to have a need for it. The person has to say, I've got myself into a bad situation. I realize that my approach to life is problematic. I really need some help. If they're not saying that, if the person is saying, the problem is that no one around understands me, everyone's full of shit, and there's this really bad situation that's not my fault at all, if that's the position they're coming from, then what are you going to say? Actually, you've got it all wrong. You are the problem. <laughs> Everyone else is all right. <laughs> so, I mean, who wants to hear that stuff? Uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's crucial that the person asking for the negative feedback has a clear idea that they are at fault in some way. Mm -hmm. And if they haven't, then offering anything is useless. Mm -hmm. They really have to be open to seeing that. And so that within a sangha where people are offering each other negative feedback all the time, everyone simply becomes self-protective. And, you know, let no vulnerability show. Mm. And when someone attacks me, I attack them back. I left my text on the floor, yes, but uh, you screwed up your text. <laughs> you know, um, you know, uh, you let water, you let wax from the candle drip on your text. And, uh, well, so I did, but then you did this. Oh, it's, it's, it's childish, you know, it's, it's uh, infantile. You know, it's, it's, it's like the school playground. Mm. Um, so you, people really have to understand that it's, it's, it's at that level, it's primitive. Mm. And it um, has more to do with self-aggrandizement than anything else. Mm. I'm pointing out your faults, therefore I'm better than you are. Mm. Which is tedious. Why does it happen so much between different Buddha Sanghas? It seems like there's a lot of that. I knew one woman who, and she wasn't in, in our Sangha, but was just a Buddhist practitioner, was a friend of ours, and she had gone to Naropa, and one of her instructors there had said, oh, well, you shouldn't be doing that practice because you're supposed to be doing some other practice first. And it seems like that kind of, 
critical discouragement happens even at a place like Naropa where one would think people are really educated on the different Buddhist vehicles. And why is that happening? Why, why is there so much of that kind of negative criticism of other people's practices? Where does that come from? Is that a Western phenomenon? No, no, it, it, it's, a, it's a Neanderthal phenomenon. Uh, and it comes because I live in this cave and we who live in this cave are good and, and you live in that cave and you're bad so we're going to come across and whack you all and show you how bad you are. Mm. It's, it's, it's primitive behavior. Mm. Being right and being wrong um, It's being, um, it's having no understanding of, of human beings. It's having no respect for other human beings. Um, it's operating I I in a highly crass manner, you know, as if there were simple answers to everything. And, you know, yeah. there's a specific rule book that applies to everyone. You know, in Nazi Germany, they used to have a device for measuring your nose to see if you were Jewish or not. Yeah. And this is similar, you know. So, um, I mean, what's the difference? Mm -hmm. You know, and you know, exactly how large did the nose have to be, you know? Was it a millimeter and you were Jewish or not Jewish? Oh. You know, they really used to do this. Yeah. And I think that it's useful to look at uh, fascist dictatorships, you know, to gain an understanding of how Buddhist Sanghas can be, because those principles of fascism apply Maybe there's no extermination camp involved, but maybe there's the emotional extermination camp and how that works. But the principles of fascism apply in everyday life. You know, when you see them in their extreme forms, you know, with the nose measuring device, then you can say, well, this is a nose measuring device. This is what this is. This is a primitive uh, Neanderthal uh, brutalization of human beings. And the same applies in a religious context as a political context. People's need to have power over each other. Oh, I think it comes out. You see all these Larson cartoons about cave dwellers. They're very funny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, primitive experiments with the kite. You know, there's this log <laughs> tied to a piece of string that they're pulling along. You know, and I think well, things have not changed much. Yeah. Or the ones where they're, you know, they're these two cave dwellers who are holding bits of meat over a fire and kind of trembling and sweating with the heat and pain of it. And one of them says, look what Tharg do. And he's got his meat on a bit of stick, you know. And um, 
So, uh, you know, one of the one of the problems with modern life is that we think we're not Paleolithic cave dwellers anymore. Mm. <laughs> now, actually, that's interesting. See, one of the things that we think tells us we're not Paleolithic cave dwellers is that we all have cell phones that make little noises. Technology, yeah. Um, but if you take all that away, if you take all the, you know, all the mm. trappings of modern life away, we're very little different, mm. because our emotions are, are the same as they were then. Which is why, you know, we like our baseball team to win. Mm. We get pleasure from the fact that our team won and their team lost. And that is extremely primitive. Yeah. Not that um, uh, any kind of physical activity, but uh, it's, you know, the only person you have to beat is yourself mm. in terms of how I can improve. Maybe can I run faster than I ran the other day, but um, whether at the end someone wins or loses is, is actually irrelevant. I, you know, I, I think competition, when it's light-hearted, can be all right, but I think you have to be a relatively advanced creature to engage in any winning and losing game and feel all right about the end, whichever way it went. I think that is the ideal, mm. or used to be. Mm. There's probably some Rudyard Kipling poem uh, about, you know, it's not whether you win or lose, or it's how you play the game. Mm -hmm. But I think that ethic went out of the window a long yeah. time ago, and now it's become incredibly primitive, you know. I heard about some Olympic athlete who came second and broke down in tears. Mm. And I think this is seriously deranged, you know, um, because far too much is put on winning. Mm. You know, you can't win without someone else losing. Yeah. And I have no interest in people losing or winning. I really don't care. But then I've never been a great sport enthusiast anyway. I, I could never quite see the point of it. Um, it was sport for me meant an unsightly number of sweating boys <laughs> running around a field <laughs> kicking a ball that had never done them any harm. I could never understand what it was supposed to be about.